0: Let's open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 4, in the 8th verse. We just sang a glorious hymn, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was, which art, and which art to come, the thrice holy God that we worship. And I want to give credit to the true author of that song, and it isn't Reginald Heber. It's Four Beasts. And I hope you love them. The Lord has four very unique beasts around his throne. And they cease not day and night to sing the original version of Holy, Holy, Holy. Amen. Amen. I love the version we sing and have for a long time. But listen to this in Revelation 4, 8. Oh, I ought to back up and get the seventh verse so you can know what they look like. We ought to back up to the 6th verse so that you can see that they're around the throne. So let me read in verse 6. And before the throne, this is the throne of Almighty God, there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion, and the second beast like a calf. And the third beast had a face as a man. And the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him. And they were full of eyes within. And they rest not. Rest day and night saying, holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty, Amen. which was and is and is to come. Amen. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. And then in the fifth chapter, the Lord Jesus Christ ascends into heaven after his ascension from the presence of the apostles, and John sees him for the first time And he takes the hand of the book of him that sits on the throne. And the choir of angels and the choir of the redeemed and the choir of all creatures burst into praise. And it's all concluded, as George Handel knew so well, with a five-minute amen. Amen. And it comes from the four beasts. The first sentence of verse 14. And the four beasts said, "Amen." amen. And if it's good enough for those four glorious creatures, it ought to be good enough for us to say amen to the worship and praise of God. Amen. That was just a little sideline to rejoice in a song that we sing for you to understand where it truly came from. And Reginald Heber gets the credit in our hymnals for taking Revelation 4.8 and adapting it for English singing. And we're thankful for that. As we come to the Word of God this morning for our preaching on the attributes of God, I ask you to look at the handout that has been put in your PUs. An unusual thing that I've done this morning, but I want you to share in the blessing that God has shown me that I want to share with you over the weeks to come. And I want you to see where we are, where we've been, and where we're going. The Bible doesn't tell us to classify the attributes of God. We do it. So that we can understand them better, so that we can remember them more easily, so that we can enjoy them more fully, and that we can apply them better as we think about them. When you have a large subject, it is wise to break it down into manageable components or parts so that you can get your mind around it. We're thankful for things that the Lord's shown us in the past, like the seven proofs of unconditional salvation or the five phases of salvation, So instead of this large subject called salvation, we are able to break it down into five phases and see God's part in eternity, Christ's part at the cross, the Spirit's part in each of our lives, the gospel's part in our lives, and the part of salvation that still isn't here, our future glorification that helps us a great deal in reading verses in the Bible because it's not just one salvation that's there, there's five different aspects of it at least mentioned by the word saved and so were helped by doing what Paul told Timothy of rightly dividing the word of truth and getting it into proper components or categories or classifications that help us understand now the attributes of God are usually limited to a list of 10 that this list sort that this page sort of starts with and they are called the incommunicable attributes they're called The intrinsic attributes, I'm calling them inherent, and I'm changing this from the preparatory email I sent you because I'm trying to make the words simpler. I love the word manifestative that I had, but I've got rid of it for your sake, and I'm calling them declarative in the second category. You know, you understand his invisibility and his immortality and his immutability, his omniscience, his omnipresence, his omnipotence, and most stop there with a list of ten. Some... We'll go on with another list of ten of what they call communicable attributes, which we're calling transferable. And we're expanding that list, and they that deals with holiness, the love of God, the goodness of God, the long-suffering of God, the righteousness of God. This is a, a breakdown that the Lord has given me that I'm trying to share with you that I hope will be helpful to you to love the Lord our God and to delight in Him and to glory in Him. If we, with dry, long preaching, were to exhaust the ten inherent attributes of God, He would indeed be great. Amen. He would indeed be glorious. But He would be a God afar of off, though He's omnipresent, because He would end up being, to some extent, a dry, conceptual, theological subject rather than the personal interactive, relating being that he is to each of us. And I want you to understand that as we move from the inherent to the declarative, there's a great progress in the delight that we can have in God because he's becoming personal as he declares himself to us. Then if you turn the page, there are attributes of God that he shares with us through redemption He makes us holy. Brethren, He gives us righteousness. He teaches us how to love. The apostle told the Thessalonian church that God had taught them how to love. He just was stirring them up to increase in that more and more. Because God is love and He's taught us how to love. And He has joy and He teaches us to have joy. He's gracious and He wants our speech to be Always with grace. And so we're going to see the transferable attributes of God in this third section. Now, brethren, there's a fourth section, and it discourages me and frustrates me that it's ignored in every theology I've ever seen. And this is a relational category of attributes of God that are the bottom of the second page. And these are both... Are are too good to be true. They're unbelievably personal as He relates to us. So this transcendent, infinite, independent God declares Himself to us so that we can know Him, but then He transfers some of His goodness to us by redemption. I'm to the third category. Then He relates to us. And you look at this list and it's unbelievable. He's approachable. The high priest of Israel could only approach Jehovah once a year with the blood of others in a secret private ceremony inside the tabernacle in the Holy of Holies. The Bible tells us about that. We get to go into the presence of God every day. You can get up in the morning with a cup of coffee. You can go outside. It can be in the car on the way to work. And you can go right in the presence of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. He's approachable. He's yes. divisible in that he is fully available to you as he is fully available to me in that he can be, he can personally relate to all of us simultaneously. And you go down through this list and you say, where in the world does the Bible teach that he is accountable? He's accountable to us. He says in Malachi three, and this is just one. This is not a, de- oh, there's another outline. This is just a little sketch. For you to know where we've been, where we are, and where we're going. There's another large outline coming with all the details behind these. Is he accountable? I have a little example right here on this page for you. He says about giving and receiving, try me now herewith. He's making himself accountable to men. I like the word vulnerable. Is God vulnerable to us? Now the world, if they might use the word vulnerability to describe God because they don't know the God of the Bible. But remember, we started out with his transcendent attributes that are inherent in his nature. We went to his declarative ones. Then we went to his transferable ones. Only now are we saying he's vulnerable. Is he vulnerable? I want to ask you about the wrestling match between Isaac, Jacob, excuse me, Jacob and God. Right. Amen. As a boy... Seeing that Bible story, very young, why didn't God just whip them? Why didn't God just pin them? You know the story, but it's a shame if you know the story and you don't learn the attribute of the story. The attribute of the story is God is vulnerable. By prayer, we get to wrestle with God and prevail. Prevail. Do you know the word prevail is used? Do you know what God said? For those of you that are familiar with UFC or MMA fighting, God tapped out. God cried uncle. God said to Jacob, you have prevailed because you're a prince with God. And because you won this wrestling match, I'm going to change your name to Israel. He's vulnerable. Don't let. I'm going to get off the subject of this morning and want to preach through these relational attributes, it's where I want to go. He is so encouraging. When he, had, when he by Isaiah, had told Hezekiah, set your house in order because you're going to die. Now, those, that's rough language. When the doctor says you've got the C problem and you're going to die, that's rough. But when God says it by the faithful prophet Isaiah to the king Hezekiah, that's real serious. And so Hezekiah rolled the wall and begged God for mercy. And, you know, Isaiah didn't make it but a hundred paces away and was sent back in to tell Hezekiah, the Lord's added 15 years to your life. But now I'd need a little encouragement because I'd still, be, I'd still be shaking. And so the Lord said, watch that sundial of Ahaz. You know that fancy sundial of King Ahaz that you have here in the room? Watch it. And the shadow went backward 10 degrees. That's my God. Amen. That's an attribute of encouraging the righteous right. when they need encouragement. Yep. I'm sorry, I got to share one more with you. Was Gideon a little weak in faith at times? Oh, yes. I know, love Gideon. I want to remind Amen. you that he, he made Hebrews 11. He right. said, That's impossible. That man was so shaky in his faith. What's he doing in Hebrews 11 with the great men of faith? That's how God views faith. He knows. Our spirits are willing, but our frames are weak. And like as a father pitieth his children, a good father pities his children, the Lord pities them that know him. Well, you know, poor Gideon, he wanted the fleece wet and the ground dry, and the Lord did it. That wasn't good enough. Now he wanted the ground wet and the fleece dry, and that really wasn't good enough yet either. So the Lord said, Gideon, sneak down tonight by one of those tents that are like the sea by the seashore in multitude, and listen. And he goes down there, and a man wakes up and tells a dream that he's had a dream that a man named Gideon came into camp and destroyed them all. (laughs) That is our Lord. Amen. And he encourages us all kinds of different ways. And it's just a little relational attribute of his, and the Bible's filled with them. And it's the goodness of the Lord. You may set that outline aside. You may take it home and use it. It will change. It's a, it is fluid right now. And that as the Lord shows me more, it will increase. It will not decrease. Turn to Romans chapter 1 with me in your Bibles. For any that are viewing this or listening to this, by way of our website, you may write the website with a short request I would like that two-page outline classifying the attributes of God, and you'll have it within minutes if I'm available or hours if I'm not available. Romans chapter 1. If you are aware of where we are in our study, we are starting through the second category of the four, and we're going to go rather quickly because I've laid most of the foundation of the second category in building a proper foundation for the first category and none of that really means anything except right now I want to deal briefly or for a while, for a few minutes here with creation because it is so crucial and important to the subject of knowing God right. and he wants us to know how important the creation is and we've got to address ourselves and ask ourselves am I faithful with the knowledge that God has shown me about himself as he expects the men to be faithful with the knowledge he showed in Romans chapter 1. God, based on just his inherent attributes, is worthy of all glory, honor, praise, worship, delight, and glory that we could ever give him. Many stop too early, as I hope you can tell by that outline. I want to show you the full, orbed nature of God that he has revealed to us. And there's a lot more coming, and I hope you see that. But let us we're going to go slow, because I don't want to race through this subject. I feel that this subject is so important for our livelihoods in this world. It's the knowledge of God that should change our lives. It's the knowledge of God that builds our faith. It's the knowledge of God that gives us hope. It's the knowledge of a loving God that teaches us love. It's the knowledge of a holy God that teaches us the value of a Savior. And so much comes from knowing God, and I want you to see as much as we can cover without spending the rest of my life on the subject. Though, that would not be a wasted life. Romans chapter 1. Let me begin reading at verse 18. We are dealing with declarative or manifestative Attributes of God. Those are attributes in which God declares or reveals or discovers or shows or manifests himself to men. And creation is the first of them. And it's the most common throughout the pages of Scripture. Now see, we're way past creation by being Bible Christians because we have a Bible. And we know that the Bible reveals much more to us than creation does. But we start with creation. And there's things in creation that God expects the men who know Him best to continue to review. If you think creation is too low for you, you don't know God yet. Because if you knew the Bible, and you knew what God likes to talk about, you would know that when He's meeting with men like Job, He deals with creation even though Job walked with God and Job knew God very well, he goes back to creation. In the psalm that we had this morning, it started with his creative power being the foundation for every good thing God does in Psalm 146. Verse 18 of Romans 1. This is part and parcel of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm reading to you. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God hath showed it unto them. I want to read just those two verses. Notice we have an attribute of God given here in the 18th verse. It's the wrath of God. And the wrath of God is revealed from heaven by the preaching of the gospel. The creation shows his eternal power and Godhead, as the 20th verse is going to tell us. But the wrath of God is revealed by men, coming and telling other men that God is about to unleash his wrath on the earth. He is going to be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on all them that know not God. And obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. But it says that there are men in verse 18, the last clause, who hold the truth in unrighteousness. So there is truth that men have and they hold it in unrighteousness. They just keep on living any way they wish, but the truth has been given to them. The truth has been shown to them and the truth has been put in them. They know it, they understand it. Whenever we teach on total depravity, Total depravity does not mean that man is intellectually deprived of the ability to logically and rationally recognize the existence of God. We have never meant by that, by the word depravity. If other men have been confused about what they meant by depravity, that's their fault and responsibility. We have never meant that. Man is rationally able to reason through and logically conclude That there is a creator God with power in the heavens that's nothing like the idols they worship. The reason that men don't obey that God that they are intellectually able to recognize is because they have hearts that are depraved that hate Him. They hate righteousness. They do not want to be told what to do. They have a sin nature that though they know there's a God, so they make idols to be their gods, They will reject the God of heaven because of their heart problem and that's where depravity lies. It's not an intellectual deficiency because when we're born again our minds don't change at all except what flows up to them from our hearts. It's a change in affection. It's a change in desire. It's a change in motivation that takes place when regeneration occurs. For the wrath of God is revealed From heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness. These ungodly and unrighteous men have truth. What is the truth? Because that which may be known. They know something of God. They know about God. Is manifest in them. The word manifest means that something otherwise secret or hidden is made public and put in public view. As I've said so many times, the manifest of a ship, the manifest of a train, the manifest of a plane tells you what's hidden inside. It's the list of cargo. That's a manifest as a noun, but when something is made manifest, it's made visible. And so God has been made visible in truth and is known by these men, for God hath showed it unto them. Now how has God showed them truth? How has he showed them and manifested himself so that they can know Him. Let's keep reading. For the invisible things of Him, have we learned that already? Is one of the ten inherent attributes of God right. invisibility? Yep. First Timothy 1.17 Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible. invisible is one of His specified attributes. Yeah. For the invisible things of Him, from the creation of the world are obscurely seen, clearly seen, being understood. Is the natural creation sufficient to help a man understand that there is a God? Absolutely. The problem isn't here. The problem is here. Not head, but heart. Not mind, but affections clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse mankind is without excuse to humble themselves and to stop living wickedly and to call upon God for mercy because he has clearly revealed himself to them he has showed himself to them he's made it manifest it is the truth of the knowledge of him but they refuse as we're about to continue reading here are we faithful in the knowledge that God has shown us. He has shown us much more than creation, which means we owe Him much more than the world does. Are we giving it to Him? Are you giving it to Him right now with an eager heart, ready ears, and a ready mind to receive those things from the Word of God, a delight in your soul that want to sing again and sing praise to Him, which we will? Verse 21, Because that, here they are without excuse, And here's what happens. Because that, when they knew God. This is the natural state of all men. Jews and Gentiles, particularly Gentiles, because Romans 2 deals particularly with Jews. Because that, when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, And their foolish heart was darkened. When they knew that there was a creator, they did not want to acknowledge that there was a creator. They did not want to glorify him. They did not want to give him thanks for what they had. They got vain in their own accomplishments and took the praise and honor and credit for the things that they had to themselves instead of to him. And their foolish heart was darkened. That's a passive verb construction, meaning God darkened their hearts. Right? Because when they knew God, they wouldn't glorify him, and they wouldn't be thankful, God blinded and darkened their hearts. We must ask ourselves, am I as faithful as I should be with the knowledge of God he's given me? Am I as thankful as I should be? Do I give God the glory that I should, or do I take some to me? Now there was once a Herod that gave a speech and they said it's the voice of God and not men. And he didn't give God the glory and bad things happened rather quickly. It's Acts chapter 12. We don't want to be like that. And he's given us much more about himself. Are you truly thankful this morning? Do you know that everything you have is a gift from God? You haven't pulled yourself up by your own bootstraps? You wouldn't even be able to find your bootstraps. Friend, the Lord's pulled you up. Promotion doesn't come from the east, the west, the north, or the south. If you've got a good job, the Lord raises up one and puts down another. And on and on we could go. Do we give God the glory that he deserves? Do you love him today? Are you thankful? This is why we have problems in our nation of men not knowing that they should marry women and women not knowing they should marry men because they didn't give God the glory they should have, nor were they thankful. But they became vain about their own accomplishments. Verse 22, professing themselves to be wise with all their PhDs, they became fools. Charles Darwin and the rest of them that think we came from a big bang of an explosion of molecular gases in the universe or that our grandparents were monkeys or baboons, they became fools. That's what an education will get you when the education is based on the vanity of the human mind and hearts are darkened that are behind that curriculum. And they changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like two corruptible man, and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. And these, this verse describes that men have worshipped all kinds of idols. Remember, when Paul got to Mars Hill, he just simply said, and he reasoned logically with them on a philosophical level. He didn't quote scripture, and he didn't sing songs, and he didn't show them the wordless book. When he had philosophers sitting, giving him attention, he started right out with, God that made the heavens and the earth doesn't dwell in temples made by hands. And all the philosophers there checked off mentally, that is valid reasoning. Neither is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. Meaning the priests of Athens were worthless. They checked off, that's valid too. And Paul just went down philosophically and they would have been checking valid, valid, valid all the way down to where he said, And the ignorance of you Greeks, God's winked at in the past, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent. Amen. It's the same, the same line of reasoning that we have right here. God revealed himself through creation. They know he's got eternal power and a Godhead. He's not worshipped in temples or with hands. He's above that. Wherefore, verse 24, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts. Wherefore God also? What had He done already? He had darkened their hearts in verse 21. Now He rewires them. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. Sodomy is the judgment of God upon unthankful, vainglorious men who do not give the Lord Jehovah the credit, the honor, the praise, the worship, and the glory that he deserves. That's where it comes from. It doesn't come from a mother wearing pants. It doesn't come from an overbearing wife. It doesn't come from any of Sigmund Freud's hallucinations. Sodomy is a judgment of God upon a people who have turned their back on God. So he rewires them. And he says that all the way down 24, 25, 26, 27, 28. Verse 28, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind. Verse 25, Who changed the truth of God into a lie. What truth of God did they have? The truth of God that there is eternal power and a Godhead. When the Bible says here, the Godhead, that means there is a a set of attributes and characteristics of a being in the heavens that we call God, supreme, creator, Lord over everything. They knew there was a God, and they knew he had not only temporal power of a tornado or a tsunami, but eternal power. They knew that. But they didn't give him the glory for it. And so they worshiped and served the creature more than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. 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 This is where sodomy comes from. This is how much God has revealed to the universe. He has used words like truth, manifest, clearly seen, understood, known in this passage. Do you clearly understand, see, know, grasp, appreciate, and are thankful for everything God created, let's take a survey and see how much we're thankful and how much we love His creation. Look at Psalm 19 with me. Psalm 19. Creation is so important when we start talking about a category of God's attributes that we call the declarative attributes. Declarative. Meaning, God's manifesting Himself or revealing Himself. Disclosing, discovering himself. Psalm 19 is wonderful. You know it so well. It's such a simple psalm, but it's so glorious. We can't just rush over it and forget it. Verse 1 of Psalm 19, The heavens declare the glory of God. Romans 1, a Godhead, eternal power. The heavens declare the glory. Here's another attribute of God. The heavens declare. That's why we're calling them declarative attributes. The glory of God. And the firmament showeth clearly seen. It was shown unto them. And the handiwork, sh- and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Firmament is another word for heaven. Amen. Day unto day, from one day to the next day to the next day, uttereth speech. There is a sermon preached every day. And night unto night showeth knowledge. There is a sermon preached every night that conveys knowledge to men. There is no speech, nor language, nor dialect, I'm adding words, where their voice is not heard. Verse 3. The sun, and during the day, the stars and the moon at night, they're preaching continually a message of the glory of God and of the handiwork of God. The Amen. Lord wants us to see that He's handy. Amen. What did He make the stars with? His fingers. Amen. The Bible says that. Yep. That's pretty handy. Glory to God. He's so glorious. There's no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line is gone out through all the earth. That's a sermon. Their line is gone out through all the earth. It is preached by the sky. That's preached by the sun. It's preached by the moon. Through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. And then it goes on to describe that heaven is a great place for him to put the sun. And when the sun comes up in the morning, it looks like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoicing as a strong man to run a race. Do those words connect to you? Have you seen a beautiful sunrise and known that that was one glorious thing that it affected you? It exhilarated your spirit because it was like a strong man ready to run a race that you know is going to dominate the field? Or it's like a bridegroom coming out with that glow on his face because he's going to finally get his woman. His going forth is from the end of the heaven. It covers the whole sky. His circuit under the ends of it comes up in the east and goes down in the west and there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. God made the sun to declare his glory and the sky and the firmament to show his handiwork. And there's a sermon preached all the time. Do you love that sermon? Look at Psalm 33. It should have an effect on us. We We should stop and think about it. Psalm 33 and verse 6, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. So how did God make all the stars? He just breathed. That's my God. Do you delight in words like that? Do they excite your soul? Do you want to glory in him? Do you want to think about it for a moment? I'll tell you the biggest thing you've ever done with your breath. In a cold night, it doesn't get very cold in South Carolina, but when you're in Michigan and you get near a window and you breathe on it, you get some little ice crystallizations right there in front of you, and you can be pretty neat. If you're very ambitious that night, you can cover the whole window. You might hyperventilate a little in the process. But then, once you've covered it all with ice, you can get up close to it and just blow a steady stream of air on it and melt yourself a hole. You say, is that the stuff you did as a boy? Uh huh. Forgive me. But the Lord breathes out, and He doesn't get little crystals on a pane of glass. He breathes out the stars. Amen. By the war of the Lord, where the heavens made and all the host of them with the breath of His mouth, He gathereth the waters of the sea together as a heap. He layeth up the depth in storehouses. The Mariana Trench in the Pacific Ocean that is seven miles deep, 35,000 feet, the Lord just has that laid up there. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. Amen. And let's stand in awe of Him today. Let's sit in awe of Him. Let's speak in awe of Him. Let's sing in awe of Him. For He spake, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. Amen. That's glorious. That's wonderful. Thank you, Lord, for these things that you've done for us. Look at Second Kings 19. Second Kings 19. We are dealing... With the declarative attribute of God called creator. God is a creator and by creation he has revealed himself. We have seen Godhead, eternal power, glory, handiwork. We have heard by the hearing of our ears that wrath is coming upon men who don't give him the glory that he deserves. Second Kings chapter 19. In verse 15, Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord God of Israel. Hezekiah knew the Lord quite well. As a young king, he had revivals in Judah. 2 Kings 19, right. 15, O Lord God of Israel, which dwellest between the cherubims, thou art the God, even thou alone. Of all the kingdoms of the earth, thou hast made heaven and earth. I want you to recognize that men speak of his creation often, Old Testament, New Testament. If you go to Acts chapter 4 and read the prayer where the saints prayed after the whipping of the apostles and it says the place was shaken, it starts out with, Thou hast made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is. In the New Testament, it doesn't matter. God wants us to start. He's revealed himself by his creation. We can learn a lot of different things about him from his creation. Look at Proverbs 30. Proverbs 30. The prophet Agur taught by sets of four things in the 30th chapter of the book of Proverbs. I hope that you remember some of them. Verse 18. There be three things which are too wonderful for me, yea, four which I know not. These are things God created that are above our ability to immediately grasp. The way of an eagle in the air. How does one of the heaviest birds in the air rise up without flapping its wings? Can you do that? Can you make something that will do that? The way of an eagle in the air. The way of a serpent upon a rock. Make the rock ever so slick. Put him on the pavement and see if a snake can still move without legs or hands, and it will. And the prophet wants us to recognize that God has created some interesting things. How about the way of a ship in the midst of the sea? That gigantic ship with those huge sails moved by a little tiny rudder. But there's more than that to the way a ship moves in the seas. Remember, we have learned a few things that God taught men, Sails move a ship by the air that is in front of the sail, not the air that's behind the sail. Just like it's the air over the wing of an airplane that lifts it, not the air under the wing. It's a wonderful thing what a ship can do in the sea. And the way of a man with a maid, that's pretty exciting too. You can read the proverb commentary on that one if you need to. Verse 24, There be four things which are little upon the earth, but they are exceeding wise. Four little tiny things that God created. We've been talking about the sun and the stars. How about some little things? The ants are a people not strong, yet they prepare their meat in the summer. Ants have savings programs. Ants know they ought to save part of income. Ants don't take siestas in the afternoon. Ants work. When it's summertime and the going is good and there's lots there, they just keep going you can knock their hill down, and if you watch, they're just going to build it back up again. As, well, you've known that from cutting your yards. And so we have a lesson here, but there's two lessons. There's multiple lessons. The Lord makes this little tiny creature so that in chapter 6, the wisest man on earth would say, for an economics lesson, go to the ant, thou sluggard. The wisest man that ever lived. He wasn't dealing in quantum mathematics or theory on a chalkboard. He said, go to the ant. Because God made that little ant to teach us something. But you know, I look at that little ant, and I look at this verse, and the other verses in Proverbs about the ant, and I realize that I have a relationship with God, that he is like a father, down on his hands and knees, helping me get my bicycle together. Because he's made something small to teach me and illustrate a lesson for me. That is the God we worship. He comes down to man and gives us these little tiny object lessons everywhere. And they're everywhere. Because ants are everywhere. There's the conies, little mountain rabbits that are a feeble folk. But they know about insurance and protecting themselves from unnecessary risks and loss. The locusts have no king, but they become social when when they need to become social. This is the desert locust. There's a whole study available for those of you that have been over this verse before and the commentary on this verse in the Proverbs. The desert locust, scientifically known when it's by itself, is solitarious. And it, it avoids all other locusts, except when it has to mate. It's a loner. But as soon as there's a shortage of food and those locusts start coming together where the food is available and their hind legs start rubbing and they, get, they, they jostle against each other, they change. They change in shape, they change in color, and they change to a new scientific name called Gregarious. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? Amen. Solomon knew about it 1000 BC. They've just figured it out in the last few generations. So, they thought it was two different species. Yes, they're the ones that say we came from monkeys. Right. That, the, that there was this desert locust that looks this way and there's this desert. No, no, no. It's the same locust that who is a very solitary creature, but when he's pressed together by the need for food, will all of a sudden unite in swarms and hordes of billions. Right. And they can do some serious damage to some farm country. And they all fly together. look what it says about them. The locusts have no king, yet go they forth all of them by bands to get food. They will accomplish anything. It is a matter. Of, you don't want to stand out there and try to swap them down when it darkens the sun. That's a lesson from our Father in heaven. You know, I'm a loner by nature. If I had my way, I'd just be alone with, with a wife. <laughs> I really like her a lot. And I just study and be alone. Don't take any offense at that. You already know that about me. But you know what the Bible tells us? To love one another. Right. You know what the Bible tells us? That private worship isn't good enough. It says not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. So here I am, and I'm happy to be here because the Lord told me that this is where I should be, and because once I come here and do it, I get happy in the doing of it. Right. Because hearing you folks sing this morning, oh yes, it's as good as it gets on earth. I can't make a noise like that myself. Trust me, my noise by myself isn't anything like what you heard this morning. And so the Lord teaches us things. And I have a Heavenly Father that makes this little this little toy for me called a desert locust to teach me a lesson. Amen. You know, there's three things that the Lord made that go well. They're comely and they're going according to verse 29 a lion which is strongest among beasts. We live in the most blessed age in the history of the world in so many ways. When you read about a coney, you can go find out what a coney is faster than anyone in the history of the world through a Google search box. You can read all there is to know about a coney. Do conies or rabbits chew the cud? Is there anyone in here smart enough to know that rabbits chew the cud? The Bible says rabbits chew the cud, so you better work that work on that one if you're ever going to answer a Bible skeptic. Cattle regurgitate their cud to rechew it. Rabbits get their cud through a different mechanism, coming out the other end, they have two kinds of movements. One is for rechewing. They chew the cud. My God said they chew the cud. Science has just discovered that they chew the cud mm-hmm. That was free. A lion, which is strongest among beasts. You know, to go to the zoo in the old days as a little boy, I wanted to go to the big cat house. You know, the smell of those big cats was pretty strong, but I didn't care as long as they would roar. If they were sleeping, total disappointment. Would somebody please poke them, wake them up? Because I want to hear them roar. I want to hear concrete shake. I want to feel my spleen move when they roar. In an African night, they can be heard eight miles away, and when they're walking with that great mane, they look like the king of beasts. The Lord made them. Do you delight in the lion? Do you delight in the lion so much that you can recognize that the devil's called the lion, he walks about seeking whom he devour, but the Lord Jesus Christ is called the lion of the tribe of Judah, Amen. while he's seen as a slain lamb in Revelation chapter 5. Do you glorify God for the things he made, that in their going, they're comely? And that huge male lion with that huge mane and that huge jaw of his and those huge paws and that huge roar. Amen. Yes, Lord, you like power. And he likes the ant. And he likes the he-goat and the greyhound. A greyhound for speed, they're still racing him. And a king against whom there is no rising up. Authority properly exercised without rebellion. Oh, Lord, you're so good. In all these things that you've shown us. Look at Job 39, which you read last evening. Are you able to go through a Job 39 and you want to stop with each of those creatures? Do you know anything about the white rhinoceros that's the unicorn? Do you know that they can achieve 10,000 pounds? Do you know that their horn can be 60 inches long? Do you know how big it is at the base? (laughs) That isn't any skinny horn that's going to snap off impaling you. I mean, it's huge. And the Lord says to Job, Job, when was the last time you harnessed unicorn up and had him plow your fields for you? Can you imagine trying to put a harness on a 10,000 pound rhinoceros? Would you mind me putting this bit in your mouth? This bridle on your head? Oh, what a wonderful book. Look at verse 13. Gavest thou the goodly wings unto the peacocks, When we look at a verse like this and a chapter like this and when you hear me preach like this there's a tendency to think this is juvenile. This is elementary. Then I ask you to rethink how old was this man that is being addressed here? Job. Were all his children married in their own houses? Was he an old man? Did Elihu admit that he was an old man? Days should speak. Aged men should be wise. In chapter 32, this is an old man. This is an old man that knew God. This is an old man that knew God and feared God better than anyone on earth. And yet when God came and spoke to him, it wasn't about spiritual mysteries. It was about creation. There's a place for spiritual mysteries. Job already knew them. I know that my Redeemer liveth and that he shall stand in the latter day upon the earth, and that with these eyes and not the eyes of another, I shall behold him. Job knew those things, but when God came down to talk to him and to settle things so that Job would properly worship him and properly give him a little bit of leeway in his life, he talks about creation. When you think of the peacock, and we've got a couple zoos in our city, or our area, and you may like the one downtown, And you may like Hollywild that's over here in Greer where you can get much closer to the animals and you can get right up and pick yourself a peacock feather if you want. But God says, gavest thou the goodly wings unto the peacock. Now a wing is a limb of a bird and it has feathers on it to fly. Gavest thou the goodly wings unto the peacock's. But peacocks don't fly very well. And what do we love about them? The beauty of their feathers. Mm -hmm. And so, though he has deprived the peacock of efficiency, speed, height, you know, can't fly like a hawk and an eagle, which are later in this chapter, they sure are goodly in another sense, aren't they? Or wings and feathers under the ostrich. Have you done that? Wings and feathers to the ostrich. What good do the wings and feathers do an ostrich? Which leaveth her eggs in the earth and warmeth them in dust and forgetteth that the foot may crush them or that the wild beast may break them. She is hardened against her young ones as though they were not hers. Her labor is in vain without fear. She's just totally stupid when it comes to her young. Because God hath deprived her of wisdom. When you go to the zoo, do you know what to look for in the ostrich? That is the stupidest creature. Because that's what God is saying to Job. And you should recognize that. There's a God that is able... Listen, if a God can deprive a creature of wisdom, can he give wisdom to a creature? Can he take away wisdom from a man? He's done it. Can he give wisdom to a man? He can give wisdom liberally and upbraideth not when you make the request. And all these things we are supposed to see from the hand of God in a zoo, in a Google search box, on YouTube, or in the pages of Scripture right here about this ostrich. I want to share something with you for a minute. There is, if you think long enough about the ostrich, this is telling us what we ought to think of the abortionists in America. What is it telling you about the abortionists in America that would take their young and destroy them? They have been deprived of wisdom. They have not got any understanding. They have no fear... They are wasting their gestation as long as it lasts. They're hardened against their young ones as though they weren't theirs at all. Now you say, well, you're making that up. Okay, then turn to, while you're holding your hand there at Job 39, look at Lamentations chapter 4. Isaiah Jeremiah Lamentations in front of Ezekiel. Lamentations chapter 4 and verse 3. Lamentations four three, Even the sea monsters draw out the breast. Are there mammals in the sea? Even the sea monsters Did Jeremiah know that in 500 B.C.? He hadn't taken earth science yet. Love your King James Bibles. Amen. Even the sea monsters draw out the breast. They give suck to their young ones. That's a good mother. The daughters of my people is become cruel like the ostriches in the wilderness. If you're cruel to children, and abortionists are the ultimate act of cruelty against a child, you are like the ostriches of the wilderness. You are like this ostrich God has deprived of wisdom. Anyone that believes in abortion has been deprived of a brain. They're as stupid as an ostrich, and they're as cruel as an ostrich. They have no fear They treat their young like they're someone else's young. Younger to be loved and protected, nursed, nourished. All from Job, all from our Creator, trying to give us lessons so that we'll understand life and appreciate it. But you know what? Because he deprived that ostrich of intelligence, do you know what he gave that ostrich? He gave that ostrich fearlessness and great speed. So there's one more verse in Job 39 about the ostrich. It's verse 18. What time she lifteth up herself on high, she scorneth the horse and his rider. You can talk about the Kentucky Derby all you want, and you can talk all you want about a horse and rider achieving 40 miles per hour for a short distance. An ostrich is going to get away. And so the Lord is teaching us that when I deprive this ostrich of intelligence, I give it speed. And do you know what? Every one of us in here have very different gifts. We look around and we tend to think about what we've been deprived. But find out what God's given you. Find out if if it's your leg. I'm using this metaphorically. If it's your legs, then raise yourself up on high and run. I don't really mean legs. And if you need help with a metaphor is, see me afterward. I'm just wanting to get your attention that God has made each of us different. Every snowflake is different. But it's when the snowflakes are packed together and they come together... And every gift and every joint and every part of a church does its appropriate part. The church can be great. Taught by the ostrich. You know, there's some uncomely and there's some comely members. Would you call the ostrich a comely member of the zoo? No. But when you look at it, should you look at those skinny little legs and realize that thing can hit 50 miles an hour if it wants to? Yes. Thank you, Lord. Oh, there's so much here about the horse. And about the eagle. You know, the eagle says, it says about the eagle in verse 29 that her eyes behold afar off. You'd look at the little eyes of an eagle and you'd say, they can't see far. But you need to learn about the eagle. An eagle can see a field mouse at a quarter of a mile. Listen, I can barely see a bull elephant at the back of this room. It's true. Dad, I'm still thankful. 45 years later for you forcing me to read a book called The Way of the Eagle. I can read these verses here and and understand every phrase just because of knowing a little bit about the eagle. But I want to say this. We live in a generation where these animals can be researched faster and easier with moving pictures in the privacy of your home in seconds for you to know exactly what God was talking about better than Job. And we should give him the most glory. We should just love him and delight in him and glory in him about everything that he makes. When you watch that eagle blink, I just want you to know there is a camera in there that can spot in flight a field mouse at a quarter of a mile. You think our M1s are pretty good at being able to track tanks that are metal on sandy deserts? I like the eagle still. All glory to God. Amen. All glory to God. What should you know about the baboon in the ways, the attributes of God? When I read the Bible, I start in Genesis, and I read in chapter 3 that God killed some animals to clothe the buttocks of Adam and Eve with skin and fur. But then when I go to the zoo, I see a creature that God made where he pulled its pants down and left the pants down. And I give him glory, and I laugh my heart out. He has got a sense of humor. Amen. You know, he knows how to make pants and coats Coats cover your whole body. And he clothed Adam and Eve with them, but then he made that baboon. Give God the glory Amen. for all Amen. that he's created and all the wonderful things he's done. When you go out and see how many stars there are at Are at night, do you know that he counts them? And he has them all numbered. In fact, he has them all named. And I hope you remember that one time there was an Abraham out there and God told him, that's how great your seed's going to be. And that seed is you and me. Because the seed of Abraham is the Lord Jesus Christ, according to Galatians 3.16. And if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Amen. When you go out at night and you look at all those twinkling stars and say, wow, now you, can't, you can't in my subdivision because there's too many streetlights, but if you're out in the country and you're able to see all those stars, God once told Abraham to count them and said, that's how great your seed's going to be, and you are represented by one of those little stars. What do you do? Do you ever think thoughts like that? Do you give God the glory? Do you right. praise him? Do you say, thank you, Lord, for making me part of the heavenly family. Look at chapter 6 of Job. Just a couple more minutes. Job 6. I want you to think about everything that you encounter in this life that God created. And I want you to love Him and delight in Him for it. Amen. Does God care about taste and flavor and deliciousness and savory things? Yep. Does he know those words? Are they used in the Bible? Does does God has God designed you in such a way that your mouth can grab something, can can grasp something salty and define it for your brain in such a way that that is right? I, I wanted something salty right now, uh, or, or that wasn't very good gravy. And please pass the salt. You know you can do that, and then there's another part of your tongue that loves the sweet. Because the Lord loves those things for us. He made our tongues to receive it, and He made the things to be land, to land on our tongues. He's glorious. He loves us to have pleasure. Right. He delights in His children. He gives us the good things. He gave Israel the land of Canaan, which He called a land flowing with milk and honey. Right. That was a far different fare than they had in Egypt. I want you to think about salt, because I believe that every table in this church has, at home, And here, in the fellowship hall, a salt shaker on each table. Job 6, and verse 6, Can that which is unsavory be eaten without salt? Who made salt? God made salt. Are there things that are pretty bad to eat sometimes? Children, if there's something that you don't like very much, just hit it with some pretty good salt, and it'll taste better. But don't hit it with too much. I tried that once as a child. It was a half inch deep, with pepper. But I ate the whole thing because Daddy made me. Job 6.6, 6, and I love my dad for that. We still laugh about it. About five years of age, every bite of it. Can that which is unsavory be eaten without salt? Or is there any taste in the white of an egg? Job knew this, 2500 B.C. God knew this. These men knew this. That a white of an egg doesn't have any flavor. If you're going to eat a fat-free egg in the morning or you're going to put a bunch of egg whites together, you better put some salt on them. Give them some flavor. The Lord's telling you this. You know, He wants you to... What does this mean? He wants you to enjoy your food. Salt helps you enjoy your food. When you dip your finger into honey, when you're hungry and tired and put it in your mouth and it's absorbed quickly those simple sugars are absorbed rather rapidly, what happens? Your eyes are enlightened. You perk up. Does the Bible teach us that in 1 Samuel 14, 27, when Jonathan had been fighting all day in battle, the son of King Saul, the friend of David, and he found a honeycomb, and he dipped in some, and he was enlightened. Some of you think that honey translates red bull, but honey still works. And honeycomb is still wonderful, and some of you poor people have never chewed in a honeycomb, so you don't even know what some of the Bible passages are talking about. You ought to try it sometime. You know, the Lord knows that the fat is good to eat sometimes, and the sweet is good. So when they were celebrating that great preaching service in Nehemiah chapter 8, he said, eat the fat and drink the sweet and celebrate. You've understood the preaching of the Word of God. What do you like best? Is it oceans? Mountains? Or do you like the little things like hummingbirds? How about jellyfish? Where is the jellyfish? Do you like tornadoes and earthquakes, or do you like the rain and the snow? Do you like the northern lights, or do you like the fact that the Lord hung this earth, not up and down, but sideways at 23 and a third degrees, so that we get seasons? Does 23 and a third make you happy? Do you know if he tipped it over too far what would happen? Do you know if he left it straight up what it would be like? Praise his name. Amen. Everywhere you look. And the Lord wants it. Does the Lord say anything about the seasons? That there's always going to be spring and harvest, seed time and harvest, spring and summer, winter, cold and hot. Yes. Do you like mushrooms to eat? Are there, are there varieties? What's the most expensive food in the world that I know of right now? Black truffles out of Europe. Five hundred, a thousand dollars a pound. All they are is a mushroom. Grapes of all sorts. Coconuts. There's someone in our midst right now that loves coconut water. Loves it. Bacon. You put a piece of bacon on you. What happens in your side, of your mouth? It makes your taste buds scream for mercy. Bacon is unbelievable. The, the poor Jews couldn't have it, but the Lord's unloaded all those pigs on us. Pepperoni, bacon, sausage. They're wonderful. Amen. The smell of bacon in the morning? Yeah. I don't know if it's, if it's just habit of having it in my life, but you know, I don't even drink coffee, but the smell of coffee? And bacon never had coffee since I was five years old. One time of that stuff is enough. <laughs> but bacon is wonderful. All these things God's made. And he deserves all the glory for it. And he's taught us how to use it. You know that I've taught you as part of creation, he put in man the ability to know how to use each of those things. They weren't discovered by trial and error. They were discovered because God put it in man. It's in Isaiah 28, the last five verses, tell us that each grain God put in the heart of man, the mind of man, to know how to plant it, keep it, preserve it, harvest it, process it, and turn it into what kind of foodstuffs. It's the last five verses of Isaiah 28. It's part of the wonderful workings of God to teach us how to use His creation. I close with these words. It's Psalm 103, and this is how we all ought to respond to every time we consider God as our Creator and the things that He's made, whether it's Proverbs 30 or Job 39 or wherever you turn in Job and Psalms or anywhere else in the Bible or wherever you look, we should respond this way. Verse 1 of Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, is there anyone with me today? And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases, who redeemeth thy life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfieth thy mouth with good things, including salt and honey, so that thy youth is renewed like the eagles. This is our God. This is how he wants to be remembered. This is how he wants to be praised. This is not all there is to know about him. There's a whole lot more. But this, for this morning, is what we want to bless the Lord for. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.